there's a lot uh, from my astronomy career that's helped me in my data science career to the point where it almost doesn't feel like two separate careers sometimes. It does feel like a lot of the skills that I cultivated over the course of a decade and then before that in, in undergrad that became almost you know, seamlessly uh, applicable to my, to my life in data science. And if, if you had told me six years ago as I was leaving academia that, oh yeah, you're gonna be leading a team at a company, you're gonna be an executive and you're gonna be working with uh, AI algorithms and computer vision, uh, I could not have imagined that, but here we are. Welcome listeners to our first episode of Astronomers Turned Data Scientists. The show where we explore the fascinating journeys of individuals who've bridged the cosmic realms of astronomy with the data-driven universe of data science. I'm Joseph Ahern in my second year of being a data scientist. And I'm Jeff Silverman. I've uh, been a data scientist for about seven years now. And we are the co-hosts for these first episodes of Astronomers Turned Data Scientists. Our guest today is Taka Tanaka, who is an astronomer turned data scientist. He's been a professional data scientist for the past seven years, currently working at Rock 360. Welcome, Taka. Well, welcome uh, to uh, Taka. Thanks for coming on our podcast. And um, we know that you've been coming to our astronomers turned data scientist meetings every year and, and speaking at them. Um, so we thought yeah, that how, how many years has it been? Has it been uh, the, five? The the first one was 2019, AAS January 2019. Oh my goodness. So I think you've been to all but one, Taka, if I recall. I think I might be I might have attended everyone or at least given a ah, talk at everyone. So that's nice. five out of five. <laughs> awesome. So um as someone who's been a solid member of our astronomers turned data scientists community. Um, we thought you'd be a great first guest for our podcast. I'm so honored. Um, I didn't realize that I was the first one. Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're, we, we know exactly what we're doing. It's the first shot. We're going right. to get it perfect. So nobody worry. <laughs> All right. Great. Yeah. So um, of course, we'll be talking about your transition from astronomy mm -hmm. to data science. But first, just to get an idea of what what you were doing in astronomy, um, what first drew you in, and what sorts of research did you did you go into astronomy to do? Yeah, I fell in love with astrophysics toward the latter half of my undergrad. Um, I took a bunch of graduate courses. I had the good fortune of taking courses from people like Dr. York, Dr. Tukolsky. Um, I had you know, such a good time, like solving abstract questions, doing order of magnitude estimates, um, you know, the topic itself. I mean, who doesn't love it, right? It's it's the kind of stuff that sucks you in. And I studied black holes, no pun intended. Um, yeah, and then I went on to do um, my first attempt at a PhD at UPenn. I left after a year for personal reasons. That wasn't really a great fit with the program there. And then I worked a bunch of odd jobs for about a year. And then I made way back into academia working part-time with uh, Kristen Manu at Columbia. And then after that, I joined Columbia officially as a graduate student. And then I eventually got my PhD there. Um, I had two thesis advisors, Kristen Manu and Zoltan Hyman. It was a really great time, very supportive uh, department. And then I did two postdocs. Uh, one at the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics in Munich. Um, I worked with uh, Dr. Sinyaev there. And then my second postdoc, I worked with uh, Rosalba Perna and Andrew McFadden uh, jointly at Stony Brook and NYU. So I was, you know, between grad school and postdocs, I was a professional astrophysicist for a bit over a decade. Um, and then, you know, going to my transition, it, I basically hit a brick wall. It was like burned out, kind of my, my mind just couldn't concentrate anymore. Uh, I was dealing with, with some personal problems that made it really hard to balance personal life with work, especially with all the 
stresses and pressure to publish and to apply for jobs. And I got sick of moving, you know, it's just like, I, I, it was really draining for me to not know where I was going to be a year or two from now. And I said, no, maybe there's some other option out there where I get to do intellectually interesting things as a part of my day to day and then make a living and not have to be at the mercy of kind of this job application system. And maybe there's uh, there's things I can do outside of permanent jobs in academia to have some sort of stability. And I think I'll touch on stability and like different kinds of stability later in this pod, in this episode, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I was at. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, participate in the Insight Data Science program in New York. And yeah, that's where, that's how I landed my first data science job. And that was in the winter of 2016 to 2017. So thinking back, you know, 2016, 2017, that was around when I, I uh, made the transition as well. And mm -hmm. it feels like forever ago now. It's, it's not that yeah. many years, but it's, you know, a, approximately the length of a PhD at this point in time. So, you know, remembering back to those days, uh, you know, what was, what was your mindset? You know, you talked a little bit about reasons for, for wanting to leave academia or, or places, you know, reasons to, to move on, but, you know, sort of what were you thinking about going into data science, the tech industry, um, both, both positives and negatives, right? I, we've heard from a yeah. lot of people about they're excited and it sounds cool and they've heard some great things, but there's imposter syndrome. There's, you know, the, the fear of, of moving out of academia that you've been in for however many years or decades. Absolutely. Um, I think it was a combination of despair, relief, and excitement. At first, <laughs> I, I yeah. love that combo. <laughs> Yeah, uh, first, so before I got into the Insight uh, program, and, and for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically like a couple of months long uh, kind of boot camp uh, to study uh, data science topics with other people, mostly coming out of PhDs or postdocs. And then the, the program basically helps to place you with a data science job. Um, with various companies that are, that are looking to hire. Uh, unfortunately, they've been inactive for a couple of years, but there are several boot camps like it. Um, so before I had got into that boot camp program, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I had no idea what kind of jobs were out there. I had very little to do with, uh, you know, I, I had very little knowledge of the lay of the land. Um, at the same time, I was kind of relieved that I didn't, I was out of the grind. I, I didn't have to apply for academic jobs anymore. It's like I was I was done with that. Uh, a little bit of bittersweet. I think that at that point I was pretty, um, you know, after doing it for a decade, I had to get used to the idea that this is now right a non-job for me. It's something that I know a lot about, but I am no longer going to. It's not not going to be a part of my career going forward. Um, that didn't happen to be entirely true, um, but yeah, that's what was what was going on, and then. Once I got, I started the boot camp. Uh, after I got into it, after I had um, met uh, other people in my cohort that were also looking for data science jobs, some people out of physics, some people out of math PhDs or uh, social sciences, all sorts of fields. Um, that's when the excitement kind of started to grow. It's like, oh, there's so much cool things out there. There's so much. Um, fun ways to solve problems and so many different ways to think about solving problems. And those things, you know, I think for academics, that's kind of what, what you love to do, right? Like learn about new ways of thinking, uh, find out about new, new ways to solve problems. And so being able to get exposure to that as, as a part of that boot camp was, was really a great kind of springboard for me where I could really kind of jumpstart my enthusiasm for data science out in the wild. Do you think there are any specific skills from your astronomy, astrophysics background that have given you a unique perspective in data science? Like maybe some things that other data scientists that didn't have the astronomy background don't have? 
there's a lot uh, from my astronomy career that helped me in my data science career to the point where it almost doesn't feel like two separate careers sometimes. It does feel like a lot of the skills that I cultivated over the course of a decade and then before that in, in undergrad that became almost you know, seamlessly uh, applicable to my, to my life in data science. And one thing that sticks out is the ability to deal with ambiguity and complexity. And if you're doing any sort of social science or physical science at the PhD level, it's full of unanswered questions. It's full of limited data or limitations data, selection biases, uh, who wrote the paper and what was their agenda? What did they want? To, what was the message that they wanted to convey? And you think about all of these things, think about statistical significance, almost like it's, it's second nature. And those are things that people coming out of undergrad or even masters in data science programs in their, uh, let's say mid twenties, um, those are things that people don't often have that if you've been in academia, you've had the privilege to think about, you know, things in a rigorous scientific way for a long time. So, so that's one thing that uh, I take advantage of a lot in my data science uh, life. Um, another one is communication. Um, if you've done public talks, I think most academics have teaching experience, you know, TAing classes or sitting in in recitation sections and things like that. Um, writing papers or trying to express your scientific findings in like an intelligible, coherent way. Um, all of these things are really useful in, you know, both team meetings as well as boardrooms as well. Being able to talk about the core of your findings and what you want to communicate about them to either a room, room full of people that maybe they're teammates and that, that aren't working on the same project as you. So very much like going to a, a seminar uh, in astronomy or to a group of executives who only have a high level understanding of data science and the algorithms that you're using, um, but have a great, um, have a lot invested in the outcomes and the business applications of your work. So being able to communicate to both of those different groups has also been something that I got, uh, that I was able to carry over from my career in astronomy. Um, and then things like uh, interacting with peers, right? How do you manage collaborations? How do you, if you're mentoring a student, if you're working with a postdoc that might be more senior than you, if you're working with a junior professor or senior professor, how do you navigate communicating progress, communicating when you're stuck? How do you navigate when there's intellectual disagreement about the approach? All of those things, you know, work. I think if you've spent, if you've done a PhD in, in any field, you're pretty well seasoned by the end of your PhD in navigating those relationships. And that's very important too. So a lot of the stuff that you talked about, lots of positives about, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the tech industry, um, of course, you know, nothing is perfect. There's, you know, flaws mm -hmm. and, and concerns and challenges everywhere. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a whole chunk of the podcast we could spend on sort of, you know, your, your current state of what you're doing and what you're concerned about both, you know, for your, your mm -hmm. group, your team, your company, and maybe the future of tech and data science. But I think the first thing I, I want to get to is, again, you know, sort of starting off making that transition. Once you made it, you know, once you got that first job in industry uh, as a data scientist, what were, you know, maybe the, the one or two biggest challenges that you encountered, um, you know, that maybe surprised you, maybe you kind of were prepared for it, but were still, you know, kind of uh, a, a challenge that you had to overcome as a, a brand new data scientist, even though you've been using a lot of those skills as an academic astronomy researcher. Yeah, I think a major challenge is learning the tech stack. And I think that's an even steeper learning curve today than it was five, six years ago when I was starting. Um, you know, I can go through like a Greek alphabet soup of all the different technologies that are kind of, you know, if you work in 
tech, then most you would probably have an idea of what they are, if, even if you don't use, use them on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you're a PhD student in astronomy, you know, it just sounds like a foreign language to you. And I think that's that's an you know an even more more vulnerable today. So like things like Docker, AWS, uh, GCS, uh, or GCP, um, S3, Prefect, uh, Airflow. You know, it's Kubernetes. It's like there's this sea of uh, there's this own jargon, right? It's like if you are you know taking your first graduate level course and people are talking about hard x-rays and soft x-rays and type one and two AGNs and right supernovae and kilonovae and you know you know this type of dwarf and that part of kind of dwarf it's just becomes it feels overwhelming at first and then if you're in a PhD <clears throat> you have several years to kind of get up get to that point and build that jargon up so that you can pass your qualifying exam or write your first paper. In the industry, you know, the rest of your team is running with it. You might not need to know it your first day, but in, in a lot of cases, you have to know the jargon that's relevant to you in a couple of months time. And I think that's, that's hard. And what I think is even more challenging is a lot of jobs want you to have it the day you start or want you to at least know what these things are the day you start and that's a really that's a definite barrier to entry i feel yeah i mean i, I think not only just the the tooling and the platforms you know public ones private ones co that companies have built themselves but even you know the the jargon and terminology internal to the company and the domain, right? You know, uh, do you have to learn all about how advertising technology works or retail or, uh, you know, insurance or whatever field that company might be in? And then even for that specific company, you know, homegrown software or projects that have funny secret names or acronyms. Um, so it's it's almost, you know, sort of three or four sets of, of jargon all at once. Uh, oh yeah, I've absolutely. Yep. Yeah, it's like if you were, you know, starting grad school in astrophysics, and then your university had its own specific jargon. Yeah, so um, I also had that question. So I'm grateful Jeff asked it as well. Um, I, I'm aware also that you have a set of slides that you've shared with the public of um, astronomy to data science. And so, of course, thank you for for doing that for everyone. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you have um, any, anything that you've noticed that's quite different from when you transitioned to today. Like what, what have been the biggest changes that make it harder or easier for someone who's, who wants to transition this year, for example? I think one thing in favor of folks that want to transition is there's a lot more literature that's publicly available, whether it be by the set of slides that I've worked on or you know other people's medium posts. There's a lot of um, anecdotal guides on how different people have navigated uh, the transition themselves. And I think that's really encouraging. Uh, when I did it, you know, there really wasn't that much out of testimonials from boot camp members, which you don't really hear until you've joined that boot camp. Um, so I think there's like, um, and, and another thing is that it's becoming more and more normalized, right? Like leaving academia to go into like a private data science job or like a municipal data science job is pretty common now it's like one of i think one of the major exits out of a phd program so in that sense like it's you know people aren't surprised when you do it uh people can connect you to say hey so, um this other professor's student did the same thing a couple of years ago here's the contact with me and there's a lot like um there's a lot more communal knowledge now i'd say um i'd say the thing that's more challenging today is again related to this barrier of entry, but also a little bit of a shift in what it means to be doing data science. 
I think when I was looking for my first data science job and for a couple of years afterward, you know, it used to be that, hey, if you're a data scientist, you know some popular machine learning models, um, you're able to run them, you're able to you know, do your simple kind of test, train, validate splits, um, you're able to do you know, A-B tests or statistical significance. You're, you're able to kind of do these, use these statistical tools and then you kind of present your results. Here they are. That's really different now, I feel. I feel like there's a ton of, a ton more focus these days for data scientists to be able to deploy their models into production. I mean, that's a jargony thing, but how do you write a model and then make sure that it integrates with your company's internal cloud system so that you're generating reports or you're integrating your results into an app um, in an automatic way. And that's a very different skill set. And especially at small companies, you have to wear both of those hats in addition to cleaning your data, in addition to kind of handling your team's data governance. Like there's like four or five hats that you have to wear be from you know, doing the actual model to you know, doing some of the backend software engineering to make sure some of it is, it's reasonably automated to doing like the data engineering and data cleaning to make sure, you know, to ensure that the data is, is trustworthy and it's clean. Um, and I, you know, I think there's more of a separation at role at roles at larger companies, but for like startups, medium-sized companies, small companies, like you have to wear a lot of those hats and that can be really challenging. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Taka, that like over the years, the, you know, what data science means or encompasses has has grown. And along with that, the types of roles, the types of responsibilities, the types of skill sets that a quote unquote data scientist uh, should have or, or could have for certain roles, even the titles themselves, right? I think when yeah. you and I made the tr transition, I don't think machine learning engineer was a title like that. Just mm -hmm. I don't think I ever saw that until maybe three, four five years ago. Um, and so there's many flavors that I would consider, you know, sort of data science related uh, of different titles, business analyst, data analyst or engineer, depending on, again, where you focus, where the skills are. Analytics engineer, even. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, my company has some analytics engineers as well that I work with. That's true. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, that has kind of grown. I mean, the joke I always love to tell uh, is, you know, if you ask five data scientists to define data science, you get 10 answers. Yeah, it really comes down to like, I think initially uh, when folks were hiring data scientists, um, there was a little bit of hype behind it, right? There was this hype that, oh, machine learning, uh, XGBoost that's like winning all these Kaggle uh, competitions. We want people that are able to do that. And then I think the realization has come or like the thinking shift over the last few years is like, you don't like the lift from having like a reasonable, sensible model that's very simple to having a very complicated one or very fancy one that uses the latest algorithms, that lift is usually not that large. Once you have any sort of model, even if it's like a simple tree model, the biggest lift after making that first model is usually in, okay, how are we going to, integrate this model into our business processes? How are people going to see these results in the app? Or how is this going to affect what people are going to see in the app or the website or in our business um, kind of you know, decision-making algorithms? And so I think where companies are looking for value has shifted from having the fanciest model to integrating that model into your business process. And that's why I think there's so much of a focus on machine learning engineering and analytics engineering now. It's it's not enough that you have people to generate these models and insights, is that you either want those same people or a different team of people that can then integrate that into your the rest of your company's technology. All right, so I question about your first year or so as a data scientist, uh, what sort of projects did you 
work on if you're allowed to talk about that? I think I can broadly say that I worked on TV rating predictions. I won't say how they were used, but I predicted TV ratings. Um, just, you know, a fun project. It's like you get to think about pop culture or the kind of the behavioral cues that people take into watching TV uh, and how, say, streaming is affecting uh, cable TV viewership, for example. So it was like a culturally interesting kind of psychology, you know, like a mass psychology problem. And also like a really interesting quantitative one too. Um, you have you know, millions of people watching TV, but you also don't necessarily have direct visibility into what those millions of people are doing. You have to sample the data and then think about how that sampling might be biased. Uh, you have to think about how then you can predict that sample data. Um, yeah, that was that was really interesting. I got to learn, um, you know, I wrote a lot of SQL in my first year. I still write a lot of SQL. Um, I got to think about a lot of different feature engineering, engineering approaches. I got to think about how do you then automate this model to run in production uh, so that my clients and other business partners uh, can see the results in the dashboard, say. Um, so we had a, yeah, I had a, had a lot of, I learned a lot that first year. Um, I got to think about, I got to learn about how people think about the business uses of data, how people, you know, how these uh, ratings and the predictions factor into business processes and decisions. Um, so yeah, it, was, it was very eye-opening. I made a lot of great connections professionally as well. It wasn't the case that it's like, oh, some PhD came in, you know, new guy on the job. No, people, um, in, in general, I found every workplace um, that I've been a part of after academia to be very collaborative. People are very friendly. People are you know, happy to have your insight. And then sometimes, you know, pe people will communicate differently. Right? They don't, um, the, the way you talk about data or whether you talk about results or the way uh, you think about approaching and solving problems can be different at times from someone that's, say, coming from a, a STEM PhD uh, as opposed to someone that has an MBA. Um, so yeah, that was it was um, yeah eye-opening in a lot of ways and overall uh, an overwhelmingly positive experience. So we've talked a lot about getting into the field, starting off first year. After that first year, let's get into you know you you've been doing this for a number of years now, Taka. You know, career growth, leveling up. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to dive into sort of the the management tracks versus the IC, the individual contributor tracks. Uh, most mm -hmm. academics I know start off on that sort of IC track. They're data scientists. They're doing their own thing. They might be at a somewhat senior level, depending on background and and the company. Mm -hmm. um, but rarely are people moving directly from academia into managing a team. Um, but pretty quickly, you know, I, I my, both of us, in fact, moved into the managerial world because we had groups and we mentored. So yeah, sort of, how did you how did you make that move, and and sort of what did you experience in those first, let's say, two or three years, years two to four, maybe? Yeah. Um, so one thing about IC or individual contributor roles and management roles is that I'll say a couple of things. At least early on, if you're like say manager, senior manager, director level. And even beyond that, if you're like a CTO at a small startup or you're at a large company, even if you want to code, you usually can. It's like, now will you have time for it? That's another question. But if you if it takes you doing some code or grappling with some um, modeling problems or data analysis to keep you sane, like you can carve out time for that. Like you will always, like no one's going to say no a senior person helping out with some code or code review or you know algorithmic development. That's all good. Um, and I think a lot of times when you're kind of entering that managerial role, I think a key question is, you know, what's that split? Is it 95% management and strategy and 5% coding? Or is it 60% coding and 40% uh, kind of uh, helping others uh, you know, stay on track and and align their work with the team's objectives. Um, and then another thing I'll say about the individual contributor versus manager track is this is uh, this is something that um, 
dawned on me earlier this year in the last few months or so. Um, I think the key question to ask if you if you're not sure which one you want to do is what kind of problems do you want to keep you up at night? Now, if you're an individual contributor, chances are when you're in the weeds on a problem or a project, you know you're gonna be you know you're gonna dream about that algorithm. You're gonna dream about that, you know, finding your code, and you might lose sleep over it. You know, just as you would uh, during a PhD or postdoc, like these problems keep you up at night, and it's it's a part of as much as you know we all love our work-life balance. It's like there is, you know, you know you're really into your job or you're, you're working hard at it if it's following you to your dreams. It's not ideal, but it's like it's the, you know, none of us is favorite thing, but it will happen at some point. And so if you're an individual contributor, you're going to be losing sleep over technical details uh, about the technical execution of your work. If you are a manager or a strategy person, then those are the problems that are going to keep you awake at night, you know, um, thinking about, you know, the career progress of one of your direct reports or thinking about how you're going to navigate your team or your company's data strategy. Like those are the things that you're going to lose sleep over. And I think an important question to ask yourself is, well, if you're going to lose sleep over it, which one is it going to be? Um, and whatever, you know, if you're more comfortable with one of those things, I think that there's a very good chance that that's the right career track for you. Um, so for myself, um, stepping into a manager role did not come naturally to me. And I was in fact very averse to it. I was, I did not feel comfortable uh, managing people or leading people it took a long time for me to kind of accept that that was something that i could handle uh, that i either i wanted to do um i think it came after i was in the role kind of um unofficially so before i fired people or before I took on direct reports, I found myself doing it in an unofficial capacity in terms of um, getting coffee with a coworker, um, talking to them about their frustrations earlier today, or you know their questions about career paths. You know, what do you what do you want to do about this company? Uh, what is that team even doing? What is our team even doing? Uh, how is my project going to help? Or how do I get my manager? Uh, to see that I'm I'm doing this, uh, all all those kinds of things that crop up, and you know these questions are the same kinds of things that might come up in an academic context too. How do you navigate relationships? How do you get your advisor to notice how hard you're working? You know how do you get how you how do you deal with difficult teammates or difficult advisors slash managers? Um, and then I found myself increasingly vocal in. Uh, strategy meetings where we were trying to decide on the right path forward or, or the right way to build a product. And so, so that combination of things where I found myself um, getting positive feedback for the, you know, I didn't think of it as mentoring then, but for being a thought partner to different people. Um, and then being uh, a vocal presence in the boardroom, um, basically a combination of, yeah, um, guiding individuals and and their kind of um, their questions, their angst, uh, their aspirations, and also then saying, hey, if we built the project this way, as we're as one of the options we're considering, uh, we're going to have X Y Z problems. We could start, you know, we could you know, prevent that entirely if we chose this simpler approach or, you know, conversely, hey, if we take this simpler approach, this aspect of the project is going to bite us in the ass someday. So we, we better have a strategy for, for mitigating that. Um, and 
the latter part, at least, I think is uh, is another skill set that comes from being in academia. It's like, I think one of the things that we appreciate um, or we learn to appreciate in academia is like, you know, you hear colloquiums about um, all sorts of different projects, just the field, all sorts of different observational techniques, all sorts of different theoretical inferences or uh, data crunching approaches. And so by the end of having done two postdocs, I could follow along to a lot of these projects as people were just, you know, describing how they went about them. And then a lot of new questions that would pop up scientifically, you know, you can start thinking about, oh, right, in order to accomplish this scientific goal, you have to measure X, Y, and Z. And I can tell that Y is going to be really tricky. And it's like being able to kind of reason all that in the first like 15 minutes that you're hearing about a problem uh, is really useful in the boardroom as well. So I've got a question now about today. Um, mm -hmm. In your current role, are uh, mm -hmm. what sort of things are you excited about doing uh, either projects or things that you're learning about? Yeah, um, we have a lot of projects on our team. So I work for uh, a prop tech company. So this is technology and real estate. Um, there are a couple of things that have me, several things actually, that have me really excited about uh, the job. Um, right now, the team is about a dozen people. Um, I'm really excited about the team that, that we built. Um, I'm really excited to come to work every day and, you know, or work from home every day and see the progress that's made and made. I'm, you know, eager for the new bugs and challenges that pop up and I'm, it's fun to collaborate on these, on these problems. And then on the business end, I'm really fortunate to be part of a team that's integrated very deeply in the company strategy. I think one of the questions that will always crop up when you're considering data roles is, is the team's work central to the company's business or is it something, you know, is it more of a supplementary function? Um, our team, our entire team presents to um, a senior executive groups that includes all of the founders and several heads of department every two weeks and it's an hour long meeting and you know go high level to very uh, low level from kind of like hey uh, here's a reminder of what this project is aiming to accomplish and kind of the business impact that we wanted to have and then here are the, the updates uh, concerning improvements in the algorithm different kinds of data we're considering and the deployment process and so it's it's a really cool opportunity to share our progress with the leadership and get their get their feedback on prioritization and usability and all of these things. And then finally, on the technological side, um, I'm excited that um, we're at this. I hate the term inflection point because it gets overused, but it, it is kind of like a pivotal juncture in the way we deal with data. Um, and I think this is especially true for businesses like my companies, where the data is very historically very analog. So if you work for like e-commerce, you work for a company that has a web app, um, you work for a streaming service, um, you have a ton of digital data in kind of natively tabular format. And it's relatively straightforward to build you know, regression or classification models or clustering models, because everything's in tables already. Uh, in real estate, that's not the case, because the source of truth in real estate is a paper document that people sign with, you know, notary stamps, right? And then that gets recorded by county clerks, right? All of the different counties in the United States record these real estate transactions as a matter of public record. So our source of truth is those documents. Our source of truth is insurance policies and documents. Our policy, our, our source of truth is appraisals, uh, uh, articles of incorporation. I just imagine stacks and stacks and stacks of PDFs, and that's our source of truth. 
And the reason why this is exciting is because I think we're for the first time able to process these unstructured pieces of data that we as a society weren't able to five years ago. We just didn't have the technology. Now we have optical character recognition that's like pretty simple. Read the text off of a, of a PDF document. It's pretty simple to uh, locate and isolate the tables and images in a document and then run those through their own sets of algorithms. And then with um, large language models and generative AI, uh, you can ask an AI uh, to parse what's going on in this document. Does this document contain X? Can you tell which people did Y in this document? Um, now, you know, this is very much um, like a raw tool. Um, it's a very new tool and we have to be really careful not to cut ourselves with it. Um, it's, you know, as, as we, you've all probably heard, AI can hallucinate, it can confidently tell us false answers. Um, so we have to be very, very careful about uh, not getting the wrong information. But I'm really excited that we're at a place technologically where we can uh, implement these new kinds of, you know, I, I hesitate or I give, I make myself cringe with the term AI, but we can use these new new kinds of algorithms uh, to actually attempt to solve business problems with them. And that to me is, is really innovative and, and really fun. I can like honestly say like the, the work that our team is doing is like, you know, very few real estate companies are trying to do this. Uh, very few companies are are truly using AI at scale. So I think that's that's a lot of fun too. And then another part of it is uh, images, and uh, property images, images of rooms, images of Google Street View images, satellite images. Um, being able to use computer vision in this context is also a lot of fun. So, you know, I didn't think, and if if you had told me six years ago as I was leaving academia that, oh yeah, you're going to be leading a team at a company, you're going to be an executive, and you're going to be working with uh, AI algorithms and computer vision. Uh, I could not have imagined that, but here we are. Awesome. So it seems like, you know, imagining six years ahead of time is, is pretty difficult. Um, and so it is, it's a really hard <laughs> problem, right? And it's like, and now I'm thinking about like, uh, I don't know, faculty application statements or, you know, postdoc statements. It's like, please describe your five-year academic plan or research plan. It's like, I don't know. It's, it just seems like a very weird thing to have to do. It's like, because how many people's five-year research plans actually come to fruition or unfold in the way they do? I, maybe they do, I don't know. But it's like, in my case, it was completely unexpected. Yeah. So in, in light of that, um, it's still fun to talk about. Do you have any predictions for five years from now in the data science field, how that landscape might look? I think there's going to be increasingly a push toward this deployment and implementation skill set. So whether it be ML ops or ML engineering, like having that uh, skill set to be able to take the fruits of either your own or someone else's uh, piece of code, whether it be a really simple algorithm or a really fancy one, uh, and then integrating it with the rest of your company's technology is going to be, it's going to become a core uh, competence. And then another prediction I have is we're going to be doing a lot of wrangling with AI over the next decade. And basically getting uh, a generative AI algorithm to do what you want it to do without giving you crap is going to be a really nuanced skill set. And, and right now, you know, so, so they call this prompt engineering. Uh, it's you know, a term that really didn't exist a year ago. But now, right, if you work in data science, if you work in AI, everyone's talking about prompt engineering, or at least everyone knows what it is. Um, and, and that's a new thing. 
Um, but I have a feeling that that's going to be an increased focus, if not for all data scientists, then at least for teams. It's like you, you need someone in your team that can prompt engineer so that you can ask uh, a large language model to produce the outputs that you want it to. Um, I do think that um, that's going to be the, the next like big treasure hoard or in terms of like unlocking value uh, that people are going to attempt. I'm not going to, I'm not sure how successful like companies in general will be, but there's a lot of unstructured data. There's like, think about right customer service chat box or uh, images um, or videos if you're a streaming service, right? It's like, there's all sorts of data that like historically has been outside of this tabular realm. Um, and I think using generative AI and other methods to summarize this data, to make conclusions about this data, to be able to answer questions about this data is going to be increasingly tempting for companies to do. So at least, I'm not sure if it will be around in 10 years, but I think the next few years is going to be a real test to see if, is this technology ready? Um, and if it is, people are going to start using it a lot. We're going to see it everywhere. Uh, and if it's not, um, then we'll probably see it kind of uh, plateau for a little bit, right? So is this going to be you know, the next self-driving car claim? Or is this going to be, you know, the, the World Wide Web? Uh, I'm not sure yet. So because you have also a background in astrophysics, I'm wondering if what what your perspective is on the developments in data science and machine learning, um, what role they can play in the field of astrophysics that might be different going forward in the next few years than, than when you were in the field? That's a good question. Um, I think a lot of the techniques around handling large amounts of data, uh, lots of techniques around uh, interpreting like image data, uh, recognizing features in images and um, 3D maps and things like that. I think the ability to parse through that data in ways other than, hey, look for a peak. Um, I, I think there's a ton of use cases there in terms of like computer vision to, to look for features and images, um, you know, just mass data crunching methods for, you know, data from like LST and other massive data sets. Um, I think there's going to be increasingly uh, like a more of a regular use case for, you know, things like random forest algorithms to do regressions and curve fits as opposed to using a fitting formula. Um, I think it's going to increasingly shift from, hey, does this equation or does this mathematical formulation make sense physically? Is it well physically motivated? Does it reflect the realities of, of the, the universe and physical law that we expect? Uh, it's going to increasingly shift from that to, hey, are the features in your model, are the key steps in your model physically intuitive? Are you taking advantage of physics or, na or the nature of astronomical objects and phenomena in the way that you've constructed your model or is your model just looking at random things? I think that's gonna be, for me, that's, that's a huge difference between having a model that looks at really kind of randomish, unmotivated things and look for patterns that way or having the model look at the data and slice the data and use the data in a way that's already kind of guided in a physical way. One last question, Taka, that we'd like to close with is, if you could give uh, advice to yourself back when you were starting out in data science or uh, to uh, astro and physics academics looking to get into data science, sort of your your one to two sentences of, uh, you know, best pearl of wisdom? I would say, find your people. 
um, I think, find people that are willing to advocate for you. Find people that will give you candid advice. Um, find people that take an interest in your career and in your projects. Uh, people who will help navigate your career path, uh, career trajectory, as well as um, workplace relationships. I think that like there's an opportunity to do that, at least in my experience in data science and just kind of the, the broader job market in general that I didn't really know was possible in academia. Like once you find people either in your workplace or as professional connections um, that, you, that, that can be your thought partners, um, that's going to accelerate your growth. It's going to expand your horizons. It's going to give you so much breadth as, as like what, what else is going on in this field outside your own company, outside your own team. It's just a, such a big difference in what you can know and what you can accomplish. And that can be really hard to imagine, especially if you're a PhD student and your kind of universe is your department and maybe the couple of outside collaborators you have. I mean, that, that's not always the case, but that's often the setup. And when that universe is like 20 people, it's really hard to envision. It's like, oh, who's going to be my person? Who's going to be my advocate? I mean, you might have a colleague, you might have a mentor or a professor, maybe even you're lucky to have an advisor that's like that, that can help kind of level up your career. But in once you step out into a company, like your company might have 300 people, it might have 10,000 people, right? There might be meetups about data science where 50 different people get together in your city, you know, every other week. Um, find out, find find who those people are. And then, yeah, that's, that's going to be such a difference maker. Um, and it's going to both help you long-term and also kind of sustain you in the short term because, you know, there's, going to be a lot of stress. There's going to be, you know, I think we all get more job rejections than job, you know, than job offers. Like, you know, it's, um, there's a lot to navigate. There's a lot to learn. There's going to be a lot of stress over those first few years. Um, and there's going to be stress beyond those first few years too. So having a network um, that can support you, that you can vent with, um, that you can grow with, I think it's gonna be hugely important. That's great, thank you so much. Thank you. A huge thank you to our guest, Taka Tanaka, for sharing his insights and experiences. Thank you all for tuning into this episode and feel free to subscribe in order to find out when we release future episodes.